with Carmen Spaniola. Welcome to a special mini-series of the Numinous Podcast, Portrait of a Marriage, where we revisit a seminal blog post I published in 2017 on resolving the traps of an anxious and avoidant partnership. In other words, a relationship where one partner, in this case me, a cis white woman, tends to have a more avoidant attachment style. And the other partner, in this case Reuben, a cis white man, tends to express a more anxious attachment style. We're going to read through that blog post and give you updates on all the strategies we tried to earn more secure attachment, what worked, what didn't, and we're going to bring the article up to date to let you know where we are in the marriage now. Spoiler alert. It worked out very, very, it's very worth it. We're still here. Yes. I'm your host, Carmen Spaniola, a practitioner and teacher of somatic attachment and trauma recovery. And I'll be happy to explain in a moment what that vocational title means. But for now, before we settle in, I'd like to respectfully thank our hosts, the Lekwungen speaking peoples, the Songhees, and the Esquimalt First Nations. I know there's a conversation to be had about how land acknowledgements are just a way that white people can virtue signal. But if you're just getting to know me, then I'd like to share that attending the Truth and Reconciliation Commission hearings in 2011 affected me deeply and profoundly changed my life, particularly how I related to people. It was the beginning of a major overhaul of my attachment style. And perhaps later in the mini-series, we'll explore a bit more about how white supremacy is embedded in the science of attachment theory and how we can use critical analysis of supremacy culture as a lens to interrogate what attachment, secure attachment really means. Certainly attachment styles show up in our activism and in our spirituality. And I think there's a major place in this conversation for how an overculture predicated on capitalist imperialist white supremacist patriarchy sets us up for insecure attachment in general and a growing prevalence of disorganized attachment specifically. So, fun times. <laughs> Where are all the attachment nerds at and all the polyvagal nerds or my somatic abolitionists? If you can tolerate two heterosexual people talking about how they overhauled their marriage over the course of a decade, then pull up a seat. It's going to be good. We don't know how many episodes this will be because, well, you know, for a lot of reasons. First of all, the article itself is a 45-minute read, so says Medium. But also, this is a tender topic, um, so content warning ahead of time. Uh, we will at times touch into trauma histories like sexual assault, emotional abuse and neglect, addiction, loss, um, all the things you might expect in an insecurely attached relationship but I will do my best as a somatic trauma recovery practitioner to remind you to take breaks, to stay within your window of tolerance, and at times I might cue us all to take some breaths and move our fingers and toes. And um, we'll try to keep the episodes to something like an hour, an hour and a quarter, so we don't fry our nervous systems. In fact, how are you doing, Ruben? Uh, I'm good. I'm, I feel a little shy <laughs> to be here with you. Um, as I say that, I immediately start tearing up as I look at you. You're, I just, I love you so much. Um, and yeah, well, and as you know, I'm 
not really recovering from burnout right now. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just nervous about being able to uh, say smart things and be an interesting person. Mm. Well, what we also know, Ruben, just to reassure you, is that every episode of the Numinous podcast, which has a rubination at the end, is in the highest listened episode. So people think you're very smart. I think you're very smart. <laughs> well, that was uh, before. That was in the before times, before burnout times. Right. And also, that was at the end of the podcast. This is throughout the podcast. It, this may just be terrible. <laughs> <laughs> No, this is a conversation we've wanted to have for a really long time. Yeah. It's a conversation only you and I can have, but mm -hmm. I think it's um, helpful for a lot of people. I know the article is helpful for a lot of people because they still share it and still tell me about it. So mm -hmm. um, the, that's going to be in the show notes just for listeners. The full article will be there. Um, as I mentioned, I'm a somatic trauma recovery practitioner. I have various trainings under my belt based in somatic experiencing and generative somatics and somatic attachment therapy. But I don't want to spend a ton of time on presentials, so I'm just going to link to my CV in the show notes. Um, but also, like, attachment is not a rocket science. And I don't think, honestly, nobody should have to understand polyvagal theory and the intricacies of the autonomic nervous system to become more securely attached. So um, it's like Stephen Covey says. There are a few things that if you do them consistently and they become habits, they will revolutionize your relationship and change your life. And when I say revolutionize, I say that in the most political, bell hooks, Audre Lorde, black socialist, feminist possible way you can within a white heterosexual relationship. Um, and at the same time, I want to acknowledge that like some of this is kind of heady sounding, but the reality is we are just two little mammals who've been together for 13 years, married for 10, who have really struggled, but thank goodness we put in all the work and all the struggle at the time so that we can be better for each other as we're getting older and things are happening like burnout, like, you know, lots of people are going through hard times. So many of my clients and my friends, either it's their parents or friends' parents are dying of old age or they're in a sandwich generation and I don't know how they are staying married while lots of them aren't. Um, so I think this is going to be a really helpful conversation. I really appreciate you um, being here and mustering resources even though you're so burnt out right now. Yeah, it's so beautiful. Like, it feels beautiful to talk about uh, where we are now. Uh, and there is that's tinged with sort of like pain over uh, where we were <laughs> that makes this so different. <laughs> um, different and miraculous, <laughs> we might say. But it's, uh, no, it's, it's wonderful to talk about this. Okay, well, why don't I start reading the article? So I'm going to read little sections, and then we'll just talk about, you know, we'll bring it up to speed. Any thoughts, any things we want to add in? As is often the case for therapists and healing practitioners, we specialize in subject areas with which we have personal experience. We attract clients that are going through similar journeys as ourselves. So I have a cluster of clients who are in fantastic relationships, and yet they still come to the brink of collapse with some regularity. It's interesting, I was using the language of collapse inside of some um, attachment. Mm -hmm. Even then, I was mm -hmm. trying to tell people, this is a collapse <laughs> skill. 
Okay, the following is by no means representative of most marriages or even many, but for the ones for whom it rings true, reading this may feel like a breaking the surface after being trapped underwater. Because this is a portrait of my own marriage, which is your standard white heteronormative model, though I gotta say, there was a lot of chemistry. It's not maybe standard was underselling it a bit. It's kind of, anyway, it is written from a she-he perspective. But since the dynamics I'm describing are more of a continuum than a condition, and because they are situational and relational, the information is useful for anyone who seeks to have any kind of relationship. So even if this doesn't describe you, it will describe someone close to you. I want to say what I was trying to say there with it's a continuum, not a condition, that was referring specifically to attachment styles that they are, we'll talk about this, it comes up later, but they're not fixed. And that's what I was trying to explain and it kind of came out jargony, but they're situational and relational, meaning you can have one situation with your parent and it's a different situation with your kid and it's a different situation with your partner. So your attachment is, is going to change depending on the relational field. Yeah. So to be, to be more specific with that, you could be avoidant with your parents and anxious with your partner like okay. so you can have wildly different uh presentations of attachment with okay. different people exactly. and also a thing that i uh, that comes up to me listening to you there is that you have started to look at like how can i be more attached in my community groups how can i be more attached in my business uh and so it's not just attachment as you know between two partners between okay. two romantic partners but attachment you know, bringing the attachment lens to the world. Mm -hmm. Totally. Okay, back to the article. So she is independent, strong, driven, ambitious, presents yang energy, has been called intimidating, gets stuff done, holds it together, is financially independent or entrepreneurial or the main breadwinner, craves more space and freedom, has less sex drive than she used to, feels her efforts to please him are sexually please him sexually are taken for granted, feels unheard, feels overburdened with emotional demands, is exhausted by her partner's neediness. Oh, <laughs> oh that's funny. I thought it was totally going to get you first, not me. <laughs> Can you feel my toes on top of your feet? I feel your toes on top of my toes right now. Thank you. I'm just sort of checking in. Why does that... It... I'm taken off guard by how viscerally I felt suffocated mm -hmm. um, and exhausted mm -hmm. by, a, you know, just being in a partnership where you didn't have your emotional needs met anywhere else. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, like I know from our other conversations that words like consumed or um, extracted yeah. are... Yeah, I felt consumed and it felt extracted. Even though you did so much for me in so many different ways, the emotional toll of being the locus of someone else's emotional existence was intense. Mm. It was intense. Uh, she thinks it doesn't matter what she does, he is never sated and she'll never be enough. Like, my instinct is to want to apologize and be like, I'm sorry, it just really didn't feel that way. It it just, yeah, he is never sated and she'll never be enough. 
She feels like a failure when he expresses unhappiness. Those were hard times. Yeah, they really were. He is... I just want to interrupt for a second. Sure. Um, maybe we can lighten the mood temporarily. <laughs> okay. I just want to check in that our cat is snoring. Yeah, can people hear cat snoring? Beside us, so... Hopefully it's just cute, but if anybody's like, what's that wheezing? <laughs> yeah. It's a little tricolor, a little calico, a tortoiseshell. She's a tortoiseshell cat snoozing beside us. Uh-huh. Okay. Peaceful as ever, despite this emotional conversation. <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Unconcerned. Okay, he is supportive, sensitive, nurturing, devoted, presents yin energy or a balance of yin and yang isn't threatened by strong women and is proud of his wife's accomplishments, is less identified with his career than his partner is, maybe somewhat adrift with his life direction at the moment. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe history is repeating itself, but anyway, that's your journey. Uh, He craves more attention from her, is the higher desire partner, feels his efforts to support her are taken for granted, feels unvalued, feels unloved and emotionally unmet, feels despairing about his partner's unavailability and disconnection, thinks it doesn't matter what he does, she is never satisfied with him, and feels undesirable and scared he isn't good enough for her. How's that land for you, reading that back over again, Ruben? Yeah, well, the thing that stands out to me is how um, the attachment, how many ways attachment plays out, um, the lack of secure attachment. So when you have, uh, when you have, for example, trauma and also not secure attachment, then that trauma, it's like it gets magnified through the insecure attachment. So all of the issues that you have um, get magnified. So when I, I remember um, uh, at that time, so now I, I cook dinner three nights a week. And for those who don't know, Carmen is, uh, has got two diplomes from Le Cordon Bleu in Paris. So cooking for you, like basically when we got together, I was like, I don't want to cook for you. This is far too frightening. <laughs> too much <laughs> like, pressure. Yeah, too much pressure. Like all this will be is failure, right? Um, and so that uh, that insecurity magnified over all sorts of things. Like I didn't want to cook for you. Um, so that's what stands out in that list is how many things are kind of like yeah, like, you know, that was a comprehensive list of, like, career and stuff like that. There's a lot of different things in there, and they are all magnified within the relationship if the attachment is not secure. hmm And we don't have to go into emotional labor at this point, but even just the... So then, if you're the only person, if you're the person who's, like, the most concerned about breadwinning, and you're the person most concerned about eating and cooking and all that kind of stuff, there's just an amount of cognitive load Mm -hmm. that is so intense. Mm -hmm. And um, it took many years before I was able to be like, Ruben, fucking learn how to cook some stuff. Like, (laughs) just do it. 
um, I will say everybody is like, oh, I never want to have you over to dinner because you've gone to Le Cordon Bleu. And, it, and that just feels very unfair. <laughs> I'm like, I really enjoy a really good hot dog as much as I can enjoy a good steak. I really do just like people cooking for me. Anyway, let's get back to it. Their arguments always seem to circle back to mismatch sex drives, even though they both know there's more to their conflict than just sex and intimacy. They fight about how they fight, how they communicate, how they misinterpret each other. <laughs> Why are you laughing? Uh, it's the fighting about how they fight. You know, like, yeah, so things like the, the sex and communication, I know we will talk about more, mm -hmm. but the uh, fighting about how to fight is just such, it makes me sad laugh. Yeah, because we did it so much. So and much. now we can look at, I mean, it's kind of like, the politics of your relationship you mm -hmm. but you are using the language of communication and fairness and all this but it's really it's like this political battle you're you're fighting mm -hmm. and without a certain kind of analysis mm -hmm. you can't if you don't understand power rank and privilege you will not know how to fight right as the Gottmans say I mean, yeah. they don't say power rank and privilege but yeah. um the if you had just said it this way, and mm -hmm. it's like, now we know, of course, attachment polyvagal theory. It's like, actually, no, the way you are actually hearing when you're in a trauma response is that it doesn't matter what I say mm -hmm. or how I say it, your threat response is on. And that's the, the, the filter that you're hearing it through. So it's like, yeah, it's a, it's a big lol sob mm -hmm. to have to hear how, how many times... How, much, how many hours and how much money did we spend on sitting with a therapist talking about high desire and low desire and how we communicate and how to fight better and like what a fucking waste of time yeah. and money. Yeah. And we, you know, I think a few months ago we had a little patch where we were fighting about how we fight sometimes. Um, but we have to be pretty drained before that happens now. Yeah. It's <laughs> You have to be like pretty rare. much medically burnt out. <laughs> yeah. and I have to just finish the biggest year of my life. Yeah. 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 Okay. They have tried. Back to the article. <laughs> this is all, this is like a hyperlinked list in the article. Do we still talk about the word hyperlink anymore? Anyway, mm. it's a linked list in the Medium article also on my website. Um, so they have tried couples workshops based on nonviolent communication. Okay, I'm laughing already, remembering the guy with the puppets. Mm -hmm. And then the guitar came up. Yeah. We were like, what? This, we weren't married yet. We were very open mm -hmm. to um, making this work. Even and then. that was in Vancouver. Right? That was in Vancouver. So yeah. that was in 2011? No, because we moved here in 2011. So that was probably 2010. So we've been together a year. Yeah. So maybe. this was very early in our very relationship. Early. We were like, we're going to get so good because uh -huh. we could tell this yeah. had potential. <laughs> we were like, I think this has legs. So yeah. let's get a shared language. And so we did Imago therapy, and I'm just going to say it publicly for the whole world to hear, and yes, I would like gold stars and props, <laughs> I went to Ruben's therapist, the couple's therapist he shared with his ex, I went to that therapist yeah. with him. So I could get, I could come across the bridge of Imago therapy <laughs> into Ruben's world. Imago is great, so we're not mocking it. But mm -hmm. uh, I would just like huge props for being the new girlfriend who was like, you want me to go to the same couples therapist as you went to with your ex? Mm -hmm. I did. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted that's... to understand. I wanted to get the lowdown. That's what was huge I dealing with? Huge props. That's huge props. Thank you. 
Uh, they did integrative psychotherapy using EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. We did that separately and together in couples counseling. Um, that woman almost got us broke up, actually. Uh, emotionally focused therapy for couples. We actually went to the daughter of uh, Sue, what's her Johnson. name? Johnson. Right here. Who wrote Hold Me Tight. Mm -hmm. So like we had a, we had a lineage mm -hmm. of emotionally focused therapy uh, for couples. We read books like Intimacy and Desire and the Passionate Marriage. E, don't do it. I can't help but editorialize as I go through this. The Five Love Languages. Boy, have I got a hate on for that one. Much, um, much more of a hate than I have. I still find some real value in that. Yeah. How to Be an Adult in Relationships. Wired for Love. Attached, Hold Me Tight, Journey from Abandonment to Healing. I'm going to say I based a lot of my career off that book, Journey from Abandonment to Healing. Mm -hmm. I still highly recommend it. I think her name is Susan Anderson. So they've done all the tricks to decrease and increase libido from sex only once a week for four months to sex every day for four months. We did that. And in fact... <laughs> The sex once a week for four months didn't last four months. That only lasted like a month, and then I had to up it to twice a week uh -huh. because I was sick of living with the gloomy roomy from hell on the six other the, days. The uh, sex every day for four months didn't last for four months either. Because it did. <laughs> we, we skipped very few days in that four months. Gazing into each other's eyes for X amount of time. Which is interesting because we do that now, but it works we way better. We do that a lot more. Yeah, exactly. It works way better now that we're not so adversarial about how we're doing it. Well, now that our, we're more secure. Mm -hmm. uh, light touch only in intimacy. We did tantric sex. We did a lot of breathing stuff. Um, I did sex magic. We, we did a lot of things. But some of their insight has, uh, some of their seeking has led to some critical insights, particularly about how their abandonment wounds show up in their relationships and how it informs their attachment style. Through their research, they've come to understand that he has an anxious attachment style and she has an avoidant attachment style. <sighs> what would you say you are now, Ruben? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm much more secure, but the undertone like whatever that is, the base note mm -hmm. of your perfume mixing or the under, you know, the undertone the of your musical. Under yeah. pressure, under yeah, stress. Yeah, like anytime there's stress or pressure, um, you know, it, it can revert back to anxiety from slowly to extremely quickly. Mm -hmm. How would you describe the mix? I'll do this too. How would you describe the mix of your attachment in a few different relationships? Like let's say with friends or your parents versus me? Hmm. Um, I don't know if I can answer that question. Like, I don't know how to... <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know that I can answer that question, actually. Hmm. Do you want some I... mirroring? <laughs> <laughs> well, I... <laughs> I... Uh... I feel like I actually just literally don't understand the meaning of it enough mm. and would have to think about uh, the dynamics of like me and my parents and me and my friends for a while to try to float out the attachment. Mm. You know? let, me, let me try some. Okay. See how it lands. I think you're pretty secure with James. Yeah. Yeah. And like he runs, though he's an anxious person, he's more avoidant in attachment, which is the thing we'll get into later. Mm -hmm. um, this is me, I hope James isn't listening, this is just me, like, armchair analysis, but 
you're you're a very secure presence in that relationship and you don't feel um, abandonment anxiety or like pissed off if you don't talk for a long time you like hold that relationship in quite a secure way mm -hmm. whereas I'd say you're more avoidant with your parents yeah no I, I'm not anxious I'm not anxious with my parents no not at all and there's a great deal of distance I would say compared to somebody if we were like oh yes that's a very secure relationship you know not that there's conflict or mm -hmm. anything like that but um, I would say you're more avoidant Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, with me, there's a lot of insecure attachment and there are times where you just don't have bandwidth, the, the anxious style comes on where you mm -hmm. like can get pretty pissed at me if I'm not tracking you mm -hmm. in the right way. Um, I would say that I am much more secure. I am... Well, I have the data analysis to prove it uh, because there's mypersonality.net, which will save your um, uh, survey results for multiple years. So I can see how it's how it's gone over time. And, and that one's interesting because it does allow you to track multiple relationships mm -hmm. and a different position within the, whatever the chart is. Exactly. So I can even see that although I've been estranged from my mom for this whole time, almost for over, for 15 years, almost, uh, my, there's still like an object permanence, right? It's like, she's still there. She still exists. The relationship still exists, even though we're not in contact. And even that has gotten more secure over time. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I was pretty secure in friendship and then like had a really devastating conflict in the past year that I can tell has, kind of triggered a more avoidant style where I'm like, I, I get panicked at the thought of people expecting too much from me or putting, or feeling pressure mm -hmm. to provide enough for people's needs. Um, that has definitely made me, um, skittish. Mm -hmm. Uh, I am more anxious with my child, um, and have had to work to reduce my controlling tendencies the, the anxiety that comes out of like wanting to control and wanting to, um, yeah, just be like hovery or helicoptery. And, and I'm shifting in that relationship since our child is left home and recognizing it's time for me to more, move into more of a mentorship role where I, I have to teach and I also have to give enough space for them to, you know, make their own choices and have their own failures and mistakes and um, struggles, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm less anxious now that I'm like, oh, I'm actually pretty good at mentoring. That's something I do with clients a lot. Mm -hmm. And I'm very secure and confident in my relationships with clients. And so I'm kind of um, bringing a little bit more of that into my relationship with my child so that I can be a little less anxious and like, bring on my back and my arms and legs. And why don't we all do that? Is everybody able to feel their arms and legs, wiggle your fingers, toes? If you are standing, lengthen your spine. If you're sitting, press your heels into the floor and let your back be supported. Back to the article. This is the section called Attachment Styles in a Nutshell. There are three main attachment styles, anxious, avoidant, and secure. Now, I would rewrite that to say <laughs> there are two main attachment styles, secure and insecure. 
Within insecure, there is anxious, avoidant, and disorganized. At this time, I was pretty heavily influenced by Stan Tadkin, um, and he doesn't really talk about disorganized very much, whereas in the years subsequent to this, especially working with clients one-on-one, I was like, wow, so disorganized attachment, super prevalent, and makes it very difficult to adhere to any attachment guidance that doesn't include it. Because hmm. you're running both anxious and disorganized sort of processes at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so it doesn't make any sense. You can't like pinpoint yourself down. And I think a lot of the literature and science downplays uh, disorganized attachment, whereas I would center it. And I'll get kind of more into that a bit later, but yeah, you wrote this, like this is a year or a year and a half or something after you'd begun your education and training in mm-hmm. attachment. Mm-hmm. So it's been six years since like the amount of breadth you've added to your practice and your skills here as an artist. Yeah. So this is on Medium as published in August of 2017, but I actually published it on my blog the winter before. So it was like December 2016 and it had been up and kind of refined and then I put it on Medium. Um, So that's a long time ago now. Mm-hmm. Anyway, let's, sure let's get back into it. Okay. <laughs> a fourth style, disorganized, is supposedly somewhat rare. See, I'm betraying myself. I can mm-hmm. already tell. Yeah. With a disorganized style, you feel like you're running both anxious and avoidant tendencies simultaneously because that's exactly what's happening. In his book, Wired for Love, Stan Tapkin states that only about 3% of the population truly expresses a disorganized style. I guess... Because I do therapeutic work, I cross paths with more folks running a disorganized attachment style than most. But I think a decade from now, we'll talk about attachment very differently. I don't think we'll diagnose ourselves or others with a style, but rather talk about working with an avoidant, anxious, or disorganized element. Because attachment style is both emotional and physiological, it is not a fixed state. So sometimes it can get confusing and disorganized for all of us. Okay, so I feel vindicated and validated. I did say a decade from now, and it's been like seven years. (laughs) So um, there is no way only 3% of the population is truly presenting as disorganized. And those studies, again, are on very specific populations, essentially white people. Anyway, (laughs) well, that's that's adjacent to this conversation, but... um, that data doesn't make any sense. Just look around. It's important to recognize that attachment styles are more like a continuum than a condition. They are situational and relational, meaning that you can adopt an avoidance style with your mother, yet be anxious with your partner, or you might be mostly secure, but wind up in a confusing or abusive relationship and slip into a pocket of disorganized attachment. And then, of course, we've had Alexandra Stain on the podcast who talks about um, disorganized attachment in cults and totalitarian regimes. And uh, that is how anybody could wind up in a cult. It's because you have a life blip that is disorienting, a loss, an illness, a divorce, a breakup, whatever it is. And it's so disorienting that you go into a pocket or a period of disorganized attachment style and you are more vulnerable and susceptible to cult tactics at that time. Okay, back to the article. Attachment style is relative to the relationship you're in. It can change over time and is a perfectly normal, natural, and human adaptation, not a character flaw. 
How does that land for you? Well, I just think that's so important. Um, and that took a long time. I think like, you know, that, that attitude that it's like, this is just mammalian. This is evolutionary. This is, uh, what humans as social creatures, um, need. And that they can't just and they can't survive just sh- without it or yeah. shut it off. We all have needs. Yeah. Like, you know, maybe you can functionally shut it off, but then you're just hurting on the inside. Like that it's like, this is something you need, you know, we all need to, we all need food. We all need water. We all need oxygen, you know, and as humans, social mammals, we need touch, companionship, presence, you know, mm-hmm. contact. And so that arrived as a, like a, as breath of fresh air for me. That was so like validating. Mm-hmm. One of the things I want to pull in here is the issue of uh, neurodivergence or let's say neurodiversity. There are many different kinds of uh, neuro, uh, neurological traits um, uh, or neurotypes as they call them now. Mm-hmm. Some are neurodivergent, they say, and some are neurotypical, though I think we'll see that neurotypical basically means you are well adapted to white supremacist capitalist patriarchy. <laughs> and um, also rich. <laughs> and also rich, exactly. Uh, but but one thing I often hear is folks who are neurodivergent will say, but all this attachment stuff so focuses on like eye contact and proximity and touch and present and all these things that actually do not work for my body. And even though we're all mammals, we don't all need that. But to that, I would say, Actually, you do still need a high degree of contact nutrition. It just has to be the right kind for you. And that is actually true for everyone. Mm. So even though we can say contact nutrition, I'm kind of jumping ahead here, but the building blocks of secure attachment we call contact nutrition. It's kind eyes, vocal prosody, safe touch, uh, shared rhythm, and ingestion behaviors like eating and drinking. For many people or most people, those are fairly accessible to like greater or lesser degree for people who are autistic or people who experience sensory processing challenges. They'll say like, uh, hell to the no on all that kind eye stuff, please. <laughs> However, something like shared rhythm of parallel play is really needed. That's one of the ways to co-regulate or like, let me show you my collection of whatever. Um, that is a form of shared rhythm. So, Not everybody has the same mix of contact nutrition that they need, but every mammal needs contact nutrition, just kind of the right, the the right doses of the right mix. It's the right recipe. And I believe secure attachment is about being able to both receive and give contact nutrition in a way that is adapted and modified for the person that you are trying to connect with. So it's like learning a language and like, Some people speak with an accent. Some people speak fast. Some people speak slow. Um, If we speak two totally different languages, we have body language. We have like different cadences. We have like different things we would do to accommodate that. And I think of attachment as as very similar. So if you're listening and you're like, "Mm, this sounds like neurotypical people (laughs) stuff, not just like white couple stuff, it's neurotypical. I want to say, like I commend to you, really looking at the research on contact nutrition you can look at it through the lens of 
being neurodivergent or loving someone who is neurodivergent, and you will already know the ways that you have adapted to connect to provide uh, contact nutrition and be more secure in your relationships, even if you don't like kind eyes each other all the time. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Okay, moving into secure attachment. Ideally, we'd all be secure attachers, each of us with equal capacities for the essentials of well-being, to be in touch with our bodies and feelings, uh, to be in comfortable connection with others, to be able to attune to our needs and the emotional states of others, to recognize our need for and to be able to seek out nurturance, to comfortably enjoy interdependence, to set appropriate boundaries, to give voice to our truth, to live open-heartedly, to integrate love and sexuality. But a whole bunch of us can't do all of that, not so easily anyway. Sometimes the reasons for our lack of capacity are rooted in the shortcomings and traumas of our caregivers in our early years. It's that prolonged experience of chronic or multiple incidents of adverse childhood experiences, what psychologists sometimes call either complex trauma or developmental trauma. Okay, so we brought in adverse childhood experiences here. I had a whole period there where I was just teaching about ACEs. Mm -hmm. I was talking about Dr. Vince Felitti who, um, if anyone ever works with me, you know that uh, part of the attachment work is like you call in competent protectors. So this would be like a figure in your mind that you could conjure that is both nurturing, but also protective, wouldn't let anything bad happen to you. And uh, many people know that Bruce Springsteen is one of my competent protectors, but many people don't know that Dr. Vincent Politti is one of my other competent protectors. I have watched hours of YouTube of Vincent Politti talking about the adverse childhood experiences studies, and uh, boy, did that ever increase my capacity for compassion. You've always, you've always been this way. You, I don't know if you were born this way or like nature, but nurture, but the the idea that like people really are good, like they're, they're doing the best they can. And you've, you've like really evolved that in more and more in that direction, our relationship, but you really always have. Well, had you, that. as long as you've known me, that really, um, you know, I was always a, uh, low key social justice warrior as it might be called now, like from my childhood, mm-hmm. but, uh, doing the behavior change research absolutely cemented that for me that it's like, actually, we're all just doing the best we can. Mm-hmm. So that was a big part Mm -hmm. of integrating attachment work into our marriage Mm -hmm. was recognizing that we are both doing the best we can. And if we could do better, we would. Mm -hmm. And when we can, we will, that Mm -hmm. kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that was huge. Back to the article. So other times there are initial sensitizing events or shock traumas that cause tectonic shifts in how trusting and how safe we feel in the world. Whether through developmental or shock trauma, people with anxious or avoidant attachment styles have had experiences that made them feel unsafe and insecure within intimate relationships. Sometimes it's been with parents, but it can also have occurred with friends or romantic relationships But regardless, those adverse experiences have helped shape their attachment style and adaptive strategies. Anxious attachers crave a deep and vulnerable intimacy with their partner. They can be preoccupied or even consumed by their relationship 
and often worry about whether their partner really loves them. They like a high contact relationship that includes regular physical, verbal, written, and or tangible gestures of connection and reassurance. They spend a lot of time feeling that their relationship could fail at any minute. What do you think about that, Ruben? Uh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> How, like, okay, scale of one to ten, with like ten being so acute, you just wanted to like flee, mm -hmm. like get out of this relationship, and like one being like, no, I'm super solid in this. Back then, how acute was the feeling that our relationship could fail at any minute? Oh God, back then, like, you know, not that I thought it would, but that it could mm -hmm. was like eight or nine. Like that, yeah, no, you know, to be fair, to be fair. You were a bit of a spark plug. <laughs> and yeah, it just absolutely felt like I never knew when you would run out of your last nerve of patience. Yeah. And that would be it. And how often now is it like that? Like, how acute is that feeling now that our relationship could fail at any minute? Understanding, of course, you, you your bandwidth, you're, <laughs> yeah. you are on your last nerve just generally with life. But. Yeah, no, but I don't feel like our, I, like specifically that, that's very, very low. You know, that our relationship could fail at any minute, that's very low. Okay, you know? how low? <laughs> well, like the, that our relationship could fail any minute, like I don't, I don't worry about our relationship failing. Right. You know. So that's like a zero. Yeah. There's but like there's, no... so there's, what I'm trying to say is there's still like, I still have anxiety, you know, mm -hmm. like it'll still be like, uh, does she really love me? Does she find me attractive? You know, I'm aging, <laughs> you know, so, <laughs> right. so I still have like anxiety about, right. uh, our romantic bond, right. but it's substantially lower and, and big parts of it are just kind of like off the table. They, are, mm -hmm. they aren't part of that mix of anxiety anymore. Right. Whereas it used to be like, there was so much about our relationship that mm. it's like, oh, this is not working. That's not working. Like, and it's so ironic because, of course, we had such intense love. Mm -hmm. You know, people at our wedding would stand up and say, I love your yeah. love. People always say that. But at the time, it was just, it was so intense. We mm -hmm. joked about how we're an eat, drink, fight, fuck kind mm -hmm. of couple. Yeah. And, like, that could get pretty volatile at times. Yeah. 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 And we, yeah, we did lots of rip cording and breaking up and near breaking up. And you that's know, what we there's... call it. If you pull the rip cord, that means you're going to parachute out of the relationship. Yeah. And it's like, you can't rip cord, but we'd be like, I can't do this anymore. Just yeah. what, what's your mom's famous words about how long their marriage lasted? Has lasted? Uh, well, she says that they've never both wanted to leave on the same day. <laughs> <laughs> and they're now well over 50 years together. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. So that used to be more like us, mm -hmm. where it was like one of us would pull the ripcord, but the mm -hmm. other one would be so in it and like, no, no, you yeah. believe in us, it's going to work. Yeah. Okay. Avoidant attachers crave independence and freedom, can be dismissive and withholding in their relationships, and consciously or unconsciously erect barriers to closeness with their partners. They find high contact relationships draining and a threat to their autonomy. Because they don't equate sex with intimacy, their mixed signals can be confusing for anxious attachers. 
Secure attachers feel comfortable and solid in partnership. They're not afraid of intimacy or mutuality in relationships. Being responsive to their partner's needs is not a struggle for them. They can set healthy boundaries, and they don't take their partner's reactions personally. We'll get to Stan Tatkin's work in a bit, but there, there are parts, even though there's a, there's a lack of analysis around patriarchy and power that I find, in fact, dangerous about um, most attachment Mm-hmm. workshops and couples workshops and I, that really stood out to me when we were doing work with Stan mm-hmm. uh, but this idea of being in each other's care was quite a revolutionary leap mm-hmm. an evolutionary leap and very revolutionary mm-hmm. as somebody who um, I feel a strong need for autonomy mm-hmm. because I need to survive under patriarchy and patriarchy was in my marriage and I couldn't figure out how to get it out mm-hmm. so um it was a huge change for me to be like, okay, I can tend to mm-hmm. my male partner <laughs> at this time. And we, of course, in the next few episodes are going to get deeply into that revolutionary change. It's interesting that you talked about um, the need for autonomy and you often describe it as you hate feeling thwarted. Oh, thwarted and condescended to is uh like, those are my kryptonite. I cannot stay regulated. So it's interesting because the list of it's like avoidant craves independence and freedom. And it it would be interesting to like rewrite them as the trauma responses that they are. Mm -hmm. Like independence sounds awesome, you know, but it's not actually independence that you want. Independence, like the feeling of pushing away to be free is... Uh, is a trauma response. Mm. And so drawing that those lines a little more clearly would be interesting now at this advanced stage of our <laughs> discussion. A decade into <laughs> yeah. this research project that is our marriage. Yeah. <laughs> okay, back to the article. There tends to be more avoidant people in the dating pool because, Kel's <laughs> the phrase, we don't attach easily. Um, and have mercy on all the poor anxious attachers trying to find love with all of us avoidant douchebags <laughs> ghosting them all the time. When it comes to marriage, we avoidant types can be idealists and highly demanding. So it takes a very special kind of person to pin us down. Generally speaking, two avoidant types will not really last together. We don't bond easily, so there just isn't enough glue to keep us together. And I think that's where, you know, the research shows that's like the um, empty nesters who then get divorced. Mm -hmm. It's like there wasn't enough glue keeping them together. Mm -hmm. They didn't have enough, like, pastimes and shared interests and co-play and that kind of stuff. Anyway, Mm -hmm. the most promising matches for avoidant or anxious attachers are with someone who has a secure attachment style. Nice work if you can get it. Hallelujah. Yeah. (laughs) Secure attachers are not highly vigilant in relationships. I just want to say that, like that, it's that's kind of a hilarious paragraph there. <laughs> you know that it's like, oh, I, you know, well, I've got all these options here. I've, I've got several women that are all marriageable. Uh, I'm going to pick this secure. <laughs> Would you all mind taking this quiz? You know, <laughs> so I can pick the most secure one. And since we know that attachment styles vary within relationships or with, between relationships, then it's like, I don't even know if you could do that. But anyhow, the thing is, Carmen, that uh, if I was a moth, you were like the sun. Like, I was so attracted to you, I would have walked over broken glass. 
So uh, this whole notion is, I didn't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you didn't have a choice because I basically told you after a week or two of being together that I was like, I have dismissed all of the other gentlemen callers I have. We are now exclusive. And you were like, like, me too? And I was like, yes, you are exclusive. Even though you, I don't think you were like actively dating anyone else at the time, but you were, you were dating, you were on the market. I, I was, uh, no, I was not on the market because after our first date, I was like, okay, I got to play the long game with this woman. Because you knew I had a bunch of other, I called it my stable. Your stable I had yeah. a stable of men that I was, you know, having um, friendly conjugal relations with and uh, thought that you were going to be my last. People don't know this story. We should tell the story <laughs> about how I had gone to a psychic because I do that every birthday, every year I like get myself some kind of reading. And I went to this intuitive who was really a fantastic clairvoyant. And she was like, oh, in the spring, you are going to meet the man of your dreams. This is going to be your future husband. You are going to meet the love of your life, she said. And I was like, oh, damn, I better get busy because that is not a lot of time to sow all my wild oats between October and the spring, whenever that was. So I amassed a stable of gentlemen that I was enjoying my time with. And I happened to see you at this trade show. It was like a, well, it was a public trade show. And um, I was like, Ruben Anderson. And I'd known you 10 years prior to that when I worked for you and your first wife, which mm -hmm. some of our listeners may not know that this is your second marriage. Mm -hmm. And uh, you had been divorced and you were dating and I knew that you had also gotten into a long-term relationship after your marriage pretty quickly. But I saw you and I was like, oh, Ruben Anderson, he's so cool. Like he's, I remember meeting you for the first time. I was single then. I went into your pizza place and um, found you quite handsome, as the women do, and your mellifluous voice, so sexy. You wore a beret. You had, like, a handlebar <laughs> mustache. You were iconoclastic, as we might say. And um, I discovered you were married. I was like, what? He's, like, 25. What a waste. <laughs> like, that seems silly. Why were you married so young? But anyway. So I was 27 or 8. You were 27 or 8. I was 23 or something. And uh, anyway, I ended up working for you and your first wife, and uh, you, you all are great. You're mm -hmm. fabulous people. And um, anyway, so I see you 10 years later at this thing, and I knew you had been divorced. I also knew you'd gotten into a long-term relationship after. So I was like, how is it in your relationship? And you were like, we fairly recently broke up. And I was like, ding, ding, ding. I could <laughs> I could snag Reuben Anderson right before my deadline because any day now, the love of my life is going to come walking through the door. And I was like, Reuben, you need a play date. You are like this, you know, serial monogamist. You need to just have fun. Let's just have fun. And we were sexting before you left that building. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We, and then we had like set a date for like our a, first date. Our first date was supposed to be like 
almost 10 days or like two weeks away. And then like the more passionate our, our sex and emails got, the more we were like, we could probably make it work a few days early. We can make it a little bit earlier than that. We can make it. And then finally we were like brunch on Sunday morning for sure. I'll see you there. And so, um, yeah, we, there wasn't a lot of choice. There was a strong magnetic at- attraction and um, after our first date, which was 36 hours long and involved multiple um, places of food and drink and a very nice hotel, we, <laughs> I was like, pretty quick after that, I was like, his other dudes are just some guys. They're just, there's nothing to them. This is, this is, this, like, I, I wasn't like, this is the love of my life, but I was like, wait a second. I need a minute because maybe it's Ruben Anderson. What? So I needed a minute to just like gather my thoughts here because yeah, the attraction was mutual and it was so intense and it was like, I could see this being the love of my life Mm -hmm. for sure. Very intense. It was very intense. And for me, it remains intense. I'm still. Yeah, it is still very intense, but now I'm just like, Really, really good ways. Yeah. Yeah. I feel your feet on my feet right now. (laughs) Okay. Well, I think this is a good place. I think this is a good place to wind it up. Mm -hmm. So before we go, I normally do a listener shout out. I want to say thank you so much to folks who have left reviews for The Spirited Kitchen on Goodreads or Amazon or Chapters or Thrift Books or anywhere. It makes such a difference. And, um, this is a big part of understanding who we are as, as a couple, as a family. Is It's in the spirited kitchen. It's definitely a, a way of life. And so when you take time to write a review on that, it, it really does feel like kinship. It's like finding each other out there in the world. And it makes a big difference to, to me and to our lives. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone. And hey, do you want to take one of my attach- attachment courses? Because... Um, Boy, have I got some attachment courses for you. (laughs) You could maybe watch them with your beloveds. A lot of people do that. I have three. There's a comprehensive one that's called Secure, the Magical Art and Subtle Science of Attachment. I'm very proud of that one. And it does include things that you don't get in most attachment courses, like a whole section on power, rank, and privilege, um, patriarchy, those kinds of things, how they show up within... Uh, relationships. There's also a short course called Contact Nutrition 101, and there's a course on attachment for parents of teens. And these are all part of the Numinous Network, my monthly subscription uh, membership site. And in there, you also get access to more than 30 live events each month. Actually, in April, we have 44 live events. And they are, I'm telling you, friends, the through line is that we are cross-pollinating attachment, polyvagal theory, trauma healing and collapse awareness which hey if that's not your jam that's fine but it'll be good to know um and this month part of collapse awareness is that i'm teaching how to make sauerkraut ruben oh yes everyone ruben is teaching (laughs) lazy sauerkraut and lazy sourdough and uh bringing small and delicious life alive so again yeah if you like the spirited kitchen you want to get in on some of that um come to save the relationship stay for the sauerkraut (laughs) (laughs) yeah all of the work in the numinous network is centered around cultivating secure attachment with yourself and with others and with the more than human realm so 
Hope you'll come join us. You can learn more at CarmenSpaniola.com. C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A. Until next time, take care. <laughs> Aren't you going to say it? <laughs> I was like, what are these finger guns? <laughs> pew, pew. <laughs> Until next time. <laughs> Until next time. Take, take care. care. <laughs>